Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music. You can take it from me, since I know whereof I speak, that the writing of a book, especially a big ambitious book about a big consequential topic, and even more especially if the book in question comes from a prominent author who works at a highly venerated and therefore almost by definition also widely reviled publication or institution, has been long awaited and hotly anticipated, subject to copious quantities of speculation and gossip, on-the-record personal sniping, anonymous competitive down-talking, anticipatory schadenfreude, and garden-variety misanthropy. Writing a book like that, it's a truly grinding, nail-biting, ulcer and insomnia-inducing, spirit-sapping, soul-destroying slog. The best and only analogy I can offer is that it often feels as if you're giving birth to a bowling ball through your ear, accompanied by persistent, nagging, all-consuming fear slash expectation that when you finally squeeze that puppy out, the crowd gathered in the delivery room will first declare it in unison the ugliest baby ever brought into the world and then begin scheming madly to strangle it in the crib. Now, if these are the feelings that many authors, including, as I said, yours truly, experience when they publish a new book, imagine, just imagine what it must have felt like for Maggie Haberman. Haberman's official title is Senior Political Reporter at the New York Times, where she's worked since 2015, following stints at Politico, the New York Post, and the New York Daily News. But to virtually everyone in the reading public with strong feelings about Donald Trump, which is to say virtually everyone in the reading public, full stop, Maggie Haberman is known, as her publisher puts it on her new book's Amazon page, as, quote, the reporter who has defined Trump's presidency like no other journalist. Reviewing that book, entitled Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America, which was published last week and is all but certain to debut on the Times bestseller list this week at number one with a bullet, reviewing that book in the New York Times, Joe Klein, the former Newsweek scribe and primary colors author, who himself can lay claim to having been the definitive journalist of an earlier presidency, that of William Jefferson Clinton, writes of Haberman that, quote, the only other journalist who can match her access to a recent president is Lou Cannon, who spent much of a lifetime covering Ronald Reagan. Klein goes on to call Haberman, quote, an exemplar of her craft, relentless, judicious, and even keeled, giving credit where due to her colleagues and fellow biographers while admitting and adjusting her occasional mistakes. Jonathan Swan of Axios, one of Haberman's fiercest rivals on what he calls, quote, the most competitive beat in American journalism, has declared that Maggie was, quote, by any objective measure, the dominant reporter. And then there's the twice-impeached, serially disgraced, insurrection-fomenting, democratic institution-defiling 45th president of the United States himself, who in the past has attacked Haberman as a, quote, crooked Hillary flunky and, quote, an unprofessional hack berating her from the presidential podium in the White House, and whose own review of Confidence Man, in a post on Truth Social, whatever that is, slams the book as, quote, boring and stale, and filled with lies, made-up stories, and zero fact-checking, while calling the author a, quote, self-appointed head case, a, quote, creep, and, perhaps most hilariously, he calls her Hagerman, rather than Haberman. Hagerman with a G, rather than Haberman with a B. (laughs) All of which 
you know, coming from Trump would be predictable and uninteresting. Were it not for the facts that over a decade plus that Haberman has covered Donald Trump, first is a New York reality television star and celebrity, then is a putative presidential candidate in 2012, then is an actual presidential candidate in 2016, then is president from 2017 to 2021, then is former president facing myriad legal threats that might land his fat ass in jail, and also potential future presidential candidate in 2024, Trump has turned to Maggie Haberman again and again and again, incessantly seeking her imprimatur and that of the Times, giving her countless interviews, including three, count them three, for Confidence Man, during one of which he turned to his aides and said, quote, I love being with her. She's like my psychiatrist. I've never seen a psychiatrist, but if I did, I'm sure it would not be as good as this, right? (laughs) Okay, so what all that surely added up to, for Maggie Haberman at least, to use a technical term of art employed in both the publishing and the news business was a fuck ton of pressure on Maggie to deliver the goods in Confidence Man. And we haven't even gotten to the matter of the loud, hysterical, often irrational, sometimes utterly unhinged, and surprisingly large population of Haberman haters, both online and off, who see her as personifying everything that's irredeemably wrong with and hopelessly corrupt within the mainstream media, from its alleged culpability for the election of Trump, and hence complicity in the abject horror show that was his time in office. About this subject, I will say right here and right now the following. Maggie and I are not close friends, but we are certainly friendly. We've known each other for a long time. But quite apart from that, I am by and large an admirer of her work and her work ethic, her competitiveness, her scoop-gathering skills, and her reportorial rigor, her integrity, her scruples, and her commitment to the public interest. The factors that have made her such a polarizing figure are, I think, many and varied, endlessly fascinating, culturally revealing, grounded in the particularities and the peculiarities of the crazily toxic era in which we live, and most importantly, they have next to nothing to do with her and her mostly superb work. I have often joked, or really only half-joked, that if Maggie Haberman broke the news that Donald Trump regularly drank smoothies in the White House consisting of goat semen, cow dung, and the blood of human infants, and then she definitively reported those facts in Confidence Man and reported in further that while Trump was high on one of those concoctions, that he'd chopped up six prostitutes with a chainsaw and buried their body parts in the Rose Garden, and Maggie had the photographs to prove it, which led to Trump's arrest, conviction, and imprisonment on consecutive life sentences. The Haberman haters would rise up on Twitter as one and howl, fuck you, Maggie Haberman, you're to blame. You normalized him. If you're one of those people, this episode of the podcast is not going to be for you. Because to answer the question I've been teasing all along here about confidence, man, did Maggie pull it off? Did she withstand the pressure? Does the book deliver? The answers are, in my view, yes, yes, and yes. Although what the book delivers is different from what many were expecting, not bombshell news breaks or even all that many news nuggets both of which, when she came upon them in her reporting, as with, for example, evidence of Trump flushing documents down the White House toilets, she published immediately in the Times rather than saving them for the book. No, what Haberman has rendered Incompetence Man is something subtler, more interesting, and arguably of greater lasting value, a biographical character study of Trump that puts front and center the milieus from which he sprang, what Joe Klein in the Times called the steamy histrionic folkways of New York's political and construction tribes, and which I would say more broadly are the grasping and grievance-fueled outer boroughs of the 1970s and 1980s in New York, and the media-addled Wall Street turbocharged Manhattan of the 1990s. 
all of it put together by a reporter whose own background equipped her for an unusual degree of insight into how those milieus spawned in Trump, a character of glaring, gargantuan, and hugely dangerous flaws, and also a worldview and modus operandi that couldn't be more cynical, more opportunistic, and more nihilistic, but has also served his self-interest quite well. Listen to Maggie here describe one aspect of that outlook and MO, Donald Trump's irreducibly transactional nature. He is much shrewder than people realize. And one of the things about which he is shrewd is sort of a, um, the darker aspects of human emotions and human behavior and, uh, and what animates people. Everything is in his mind you know, there, there's a deal to be had on everything. What I'm actually reminded of is when he uh, had his first meeting with the intel chiefs um, when he was first elected during the transition, and they were briefing him on the the, the report about Russian interference. Uh, ironically, uh, a the date of that briefing, I found out when I was researching for the book, was January 6th, 2017. So January 6th sort of looms as an important date, um, you know, at the bookends of both of his presidency. Um but he has this thing that he says to one of them, I think it was, it was, it was Brennan, you know, anybody can, anybody, if you pay them enough, they'll say anything, you know it and I know it. And that is how he views things. Confidence Man is full of clear-eyed observations like that with vivid reportage to back them up and make them come alive. And so happily was my conversation with Maggie Haberman. Way too many observations and anecdotes, in fact, to cram into a single episode of the podcast. So today we will give you only the first installment of a two-part episode revolving around this talk. And in that first installment, you get to hear a discussion of two brand new big-time scoops last weekend on the Trump classified document investigation beat that Haberman, being Haberman, managed to help the Times break, even as she was booked back-to-back on the cable news book promotion circuit, and then diving deep into Trump's life before politics. Then, tomorrow morning, bright and early, we'll be bringing you the second installment in which we cover Trump from 2016 to today, including the question on which control of the U.S. Senate may turn, whether the Herschel Walker abortion scandal in Georgia could turn out to be Trump's access Hollywood imbroglio all over again. You are not going to want to miss that discussion, so don't forget to come back tomorrow. But then you're not going to want to miss any of what these two hours stretched across two days hold in store. Haberman, Heilman, a whole new flavor of Hell and High Water. You had said on Truth Social a number of times, you did declassify. I did declassify, yes. Okay. Is there a process? What was your process to declassify? There doesn't have to be a process, as I understand it. You know, there's different people say different things. But as I understand, there doesn't have to be. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. So there he is, Donald Trump, former president of the United States, now uh, retiree and potential future convict uh, living in in South Florida, uh, talking to Sean Hannity. And, you know, Trump has said a lot of insane shit about, well, a lot of insane shit in his whole whole, uh, life and career, which we'll get to. 
But uh, and in the course of this classified documents investigation, uh, that that you know, did he pilfer a bunch of stuff, which he obviously did, and took down to Mar-a-Lago with him, and now he got the FBI and the DOJ uh, after him. The idea that like that you could just declassify documents as president just by thinking about it still is like really off the charts in terms of craziness. And and we have with us today someone who knows Trump's craziness in a in a deeper and more thoroughgoing, complete, comprehensive way. Then, then maybe any reporter who's covered Trump uh, through his career, both before politics, during politics, and now whatever it is he is now, just as you know, sort of like insurrectionist in chief. Uh, and that woman is Maggie Haberman. I've always thought I was felt sympathetic towards you in a variety of ways, given the amount of time you spend inside Donald Trump's head. But um, I was just thinking about like it's been a while, right? It's been years you've been living inside that head, right? Basically, like a decade now or so. Yeah, more a little more than a decade. I thought you were going to express sympathy for other reasons, so I'll, I'll take it for that. Um, I, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I've been covering him intensely. Obviously, became more intense uh, after he became a candidate in 2015. But from in 2011, when he was spreading the birther lie about Obama as he was considering a campaign of his own. Uh, I did a lot of work around that and and have just tracked him since. Uh, and thank you for having me, incidentally. Well, thank you for coming on. I, that was a very bad introduction on my part. I was just like, nope, <laughs> no, you know, I mean, the, the way in which I think the, the introduction is not great is that Ted's mentioned the book, um, which is the book everyone's talking about. Um, uh, Maggie Haberman, her new book, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America, a book that a lot of people have been wait, waiting for for you know months, days, weeks, months, years. You know, When's Maggie going to write a book? Uh, and it's gotten a ton of attention last week. Um, last Tuesday, it, it, it came out. And, uh, you know, it's a little Donald Trumpy to say that, you know, everyone's, you know, everyone's saying, everyone's talking about it. Many people are saying that it's the definitive book uh, about Trump. Um, we'll get to the book um, and um, and we'll get to it in due course. But, you know, Maggie, you and I were talking a couple of weeks ago on the phone and and, and I, it, it occurred to me that unlike every other book author I've ever known who, when it comes time to finally give birth to that baby, you're like, okay, I'm going to take off a month and I'm going to go promote it. I was like, well, Maggie's going to promote this book like crazy for sure, but she's not going to just promote the book. She's going to still be working the Trump beat because a lot of news is happening and Maggie doesn't like to get beat. And so she's going to be out there doing this. And I'm imagining in my mind uh, where, where imaginings happen. I'm thinking, you know, she's going to be like running from television studio to television studio, still working the phone, still working her her, uh, her all of her various communications channels and breaking news while this promotional tour happens. And lo and behold, you know, come uh, Friday night, Saturday, you know, you get two big stories, uh, breaking news on the Trump uh, classified documents investigation uh, in the Times that you are co-bylined on both of them. The first one on, on I guess, Thursday, this was October 6th. It says uh, the headline is Justice Department is said to believe Trump has more documents. <laughs> and by that, you mean more classified documents. You're on that with Mike Schmidt and Katie Benner. And then on Saturday, uh, we get uh, how Trump deflected demands for documents in meshing aids, which is just you and Mike Schmidt. So, um, you know, I predicted it and uh, then it's happened. And now I want to hear you talk about these pieces because I think they are important. They have uh, some some legal implications that need to be discussed and some political implications. So why don't you just walk us through what those stories say, because I'm sure we're still going to be talking about them uh, by the time this podcast posts on Tuesday. Sure. So uh, you are correct that the, the Trump story does not, uh, particularly the investigations piece, does not stop moving. Um, and uh, you've known me a really long time. I I don't like getting beat on stories, um, and uh, number one, but number two, I would like to get information that's reportable and confirmed out in public as, 
as soon as possible. Um, in in this uh, instance, the first story uh, was we uh, had reporting that uh, the Trump team actually had been in, in touch with DOJ or had having discussions with DOJ over the last couple of weeks. And part of those discussions was that Jay Bratt, who was the, this counterintelligence official with DOJ, who, who went down to Mar-a-Lago in June and, you know, was told by one of Trump's lawyers, yep, that's it. We've now given you all the documents with classified markings. Bratt sent word that the DOJ believes Trump still has documents in his possession. And this was really striking, right? Because the, the DOJ has now made three efforts. Well, actually, I should say federal officials have made three efforts to recover material. One was in January with 15 boxes that went to the archives, right. and they discovered classified material. One was under subpoena in June. And then one was an FBI search in August, and they still think there's more. And they've talked about you know other Trump properties. Could there be material elsewhere? A couple of Trump's lawyers wanted to hire a forensic search team to look for documents at his properties. And they felt like this would, you know, comply with DOJ and answer what they wanted. And then other lawyers in Trump's orbit said, absolutely not. You know, we're going to fight. We're going to fight. And so Trump Trump had actually agreed with the compliance group and then changed his mind. So that was one story. And then the other is a piece that popped Saturday morning, which was, uh, again, uh, Mike Schmidt uh, and me. uh, There were other colleagues of ours uh, on the other story as well. But this was about how Trump last fall, when the archives, you know, spent months and months and months trying to get these boxes back, they had cycled through one Trump, you know, advisor or official after another. and they, they finally ended up talking to this one lawyer who was deeply involved in responding to requests related to January 6th, requests from the Congressional Committee. But while they were having all of these conversations, Trump was interested in getting hold of some documents from the archives that related to the uh, Russia investigation and things that Trump thought he had declassified and he wanted so he could prove his innocence. They still had classified markings, so the archives wouldn't give them up. And Trump at one point said to his advisors, well, let's let's cut a deal. You know, I'll give them the boxes if they'll give me that stuff. And it's, you know, there's a lot to unpack there, right? Yeah. It's yeah. basically, it's kind of the, it's the, it's the Trump, it's the Trump, you know, MO, which is some kind of, uh, you know, I want you to do us a favor though, right? From that Zelensky phone yes. call. Um, and, and, and it's also an, an, an awareness that they wanted this stuff back. I mean, yes. it's not, you know, it's very hard to pretend that you didn't know or keep claiming you didn't know when you're having a conversation like that. So anyway, so we wrote about that and then we just wrote about a, a bunch of, in, in that story, a lot of the TikTok and, and one of the, the pieces of reporting that I, I found pretty interesting is that this lawyer who ended up being the person the archives deals with, this lawyer for Trump, who's telling Trump, send the boxes back as is, just send them. Archives will go through them. Yeah. If there's stuff that's yours, they'll return them. That's the way this goes. And Trump says, no, you know, yes. Trump delays and delays and delays. They finally pick up these boxes. And shortly after, Trump says to the lawyer, just tell them I gave everything back because archives believed they didn't have everything. And the lawyer, worried about making such a definitive statement to federal officials, refuses to do so. Yeah. Uh, and it then strains their relationship. And Trump now blames this lawyer for why <laughs> Trump has a legal problem. He's been saying to any number of other people in his world, you know, it's his fault because he told me to give this stuff back. And if I hadn't given this back, 
you know, the way right. Tom Fitton of Judicial Watch said I didn't have to, et cetera, this yeah. wouldn't be a problem. So that's the story. So there's a lot of things. I mean, there really is a lot to unpack, and the two stories are different stories, <laughs> but they're worth unpacking, I think, just because, I mean, the first one's worth unpacking because it, it, it the, the thing you didn't answer, which I think is it's fine because those are, that's, those are detailed accounts of those stories, but what does it mean for Trump going forward? The first one, mm-hmm. the notion that Trump still has classified documents, which is that basically the headline that got that got amplified on, on cable news and has been everywhere over the last weekend, is basically like what, you know, when the story first broke, I, I jokingly, I think, said on television, because I was guest hosting for Nicole that week, great, you know, it's just, you know, she takes vacation and I get to go in there for a week and the, the story breaks, this Mar-a-Lago story breaks. And I jokingly was I, like- I would call that good timing. That's well, good timing. Well, <laughs> it was good, yes, it was good timing. Uh, it was good timing, but also like, you know, holy shit, this is not my job, but fun in a way. But I, I think I jokingly was like, you know, this won't be the end of it. They'll be in Bedminster next. You know, they're, they're like, why, you know, why limit the search to Mar-a-Lago? You never know with Trump. And that was, you know, my reflexive. The thing about Trump is when you're reflexively cynical, it often turns out to be on the basis of just instinct. You often turn out to later be right. And, and I'm not saying that these documents are at Bedminster or that's what you're reporting, but the notion that he still has them, they might be someplace else. The fact that there's this discussion that maybe we should do we should go search the other properties in some way, for whether the DOJ would want that or whether Trump's lawyers would want that as a, as a defensive move. It's going to make a lot of Americans just be like, you know, um, well, of course he has more. You know, of course he has more. And of course, this is worse, even worse than we think it is already. So my question to you is, is that right? Basically, it is. It, this portends that this case, which is already, and I'll ask you about this in a second, about how serious you think this is a threat to him in terms of legal uh, criminal liability. But is it just basically the story is here? Yeah, it was really bad before, and it's even worse now potentially. Yeah, I think if you're you know boiling it down to marrow, I think that is that is what it is. Now, what that portends in terms of charges, right. I don't think we know, and I think that it's important, John, to bear in mind that you know Trump looks at everything through the lens of am I getting criminally charged? Yes, because that's the one thing you really can, and not just in this instance, right? It's his whole All life, instances. and yeah, so right. yeah, and um, and so. You know, he will look at it as some kind of victory if he doesn't get a criminal charge. Um, but I think that the fact that DOJ thinks there is more material there uh, raises all kinds of questions, not just, you know, about concealment and about mishandling. But remember, the federal government is still doing a damage assessment related yes, to these documents. Right. They're trying to figure yes. out what what the actual security value slash risk was of him having this material. And so if they find there's more along those lines, that I I do think raises additional questions. Well, right. And I mean, look, there are two, there are a couple things to say here. One is a former president of the United States possessing classified documents is illegal. There's not like, there's no ambiguity about that. It's illegal. You might decide not to charge it, but it's pre. It's you know you're not allowed to have that. You're not well, allowed. Anyone, to have anyone material. possessing classified. I mean, well, he doesn't. He doesn't have a. He doesn't have a security clearance. You know. I mean, right. that's the other piece too, right? right. It's like yes. he, he's afforded different protections or, or or presumptions as a president. But yeah, I mean, it's it's right. it's just different. One of the points here is that there are two things that people talk about in terms. Well, there are a number of things people talk about in terms of what charges might get brought. One of them just pertains to having these classified documents, that being illegal. One of them pertains to the Espionage Act and, and what exactly these documents were and what the potential uses of them would be. But the third is the obstruction case, which a lot of people think is going to be the easiest case to make. The notion that, and the DOJ has gone through court filings in a totally appropriate way, has gone to great lengths to say what you said a second ago. We have tried nicely 
We've tried slightly less nicely. We've been, we've been very insistent with subpoenas. We've been asking, demanding, calling for the return of these. We would have been very happy if it happened in a completely collaborative way. Instead, so we've been seeking them for months and months and months, and, and they didn't come back. And that points to an obstruction case that would be very powerful. And if there are more now still, even in the wake of all of this, if there are more, it would seem to me, I'm not a lawyer, I don't even play one on TV, but that the obstruction case just gets stronger if it is in fact the case that he still has, he still is hiding more classified documents. I just don't see how that's not one of the conclusions that you draw, that his legal liability, at least potential liability, is is more is greater on the obstruction front if this turns out to be true. Yeah, I, I think one of the, the potential crimes that we know DOJ has been looking at is obstruction of justice, to your point. Um, you know, it, it, it may be the clearest one to make. That, that was actually the case with the Mueller report as well, that, you know, Mueller listed these various instances that could be seen as obstruction. Um, you know, he didn't make a decision recommending charges or not. He left that to, to justice. And, and Barr came down on the side of, you know, there's no underlying crime, so there's nothing to obstruct. Um, I don't know that that would be the case here, uh, right? I mean, I think that even if they even if they don't find a violation of the Espionage Act, um, right. I still think that they could decide that they were, uh, you know, given responses or information that, you know, was contrary. And and one thing that I know I keep pointing back to the Mueller's report, but, you know, we talked about this, uh, Mike Schmidt and I did in our story uh, about this topic. The same issue happened with Mueller as is happening here, which is it's the lawyers who get ensnared in this. It's the lawyers yes. who end up as potential witnesses, right? right. So Don yes. McGahn, White House counsel, was a a key witness for Mueller, um, spent, you know, more than 30 hours talking to Mueller. And one of the things that somebody who worked for Trump in that White House said to me was, Trump told McGahn, go tell them everything. And and McGahn did. And, and then Trump seemed surprised that McGahn had done that. Um, yeah. You know, in this case, Trump is telling one of his lawyers, just tell them I gave everything back. Um, right. it, it, is, it is a guarantee that a bunch of these lawyers end up as witnesses, including, you know, uh, Christina Bob, who was the one who signed this attestation in June, saying they had totally met the subpoena asking for right. classified documents. So, um, you know, at minimum, they will they will want to have her as a witness, I think. I always get confused between Christina Bob and the other one. Is she the parking lot lawyer? Or yeah. is the other one the parking lot lawyer? I think you're thinking of the other one. Christina Bob is the former OAN um, uh, uh, Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, I mixed up which... Different person. Yeah, different yeah, and different set of like ridi- different set of ridiculous credentials to be representing a president as di- a, di- as an attorney in, in a case like entirely this. different human. Like I say, both of them have always struck me as a little bit maybe not like. Um, uh, you remember we used to, he used to have like Ty Cobb and 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 Dowd as his lawyers, and now he has uh, these parking lot lawyers and OA, former OAN personalities. Um, well, except I would, but what he'll take? Can I just raise one thing? What he'll yeah, take? Yeah, sure, from of, that, course, of course. If of course. if if he succeeds and doesn't get charged, his his take on all of that will be, see, it doesn't matter. My well, impulses were right. I went with the great. Of course. This is, yeah. Of, this is of always course. the way and, it and goes. That's, and that's still to play for. But but here's my, my question without being snide or glib about it. Mm. it the, the, the things that you mentioned that are worth unpacking in all that story, in, in that story, are, I think, the following. Let me see if I can make a list of them. One, <laughs> that Trump regards basically all the people who work for him and lawyers, whether the lawyers, PR people, staff, basically all of his factotums as being factotums. Basically, they're all expendable. He doesn't care about their their legal jeopardy. He'll, he just says lie to the lie to the archives. Whatever. That's one thing. They just are. They're 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 uh, 
they're ordnance, right, to fire out into battle. They're not like people whose ultimate liability he particularly cares about. That's my first thing. And the second thing is the idea that like the archives, like what, what president in history, Maggie, has ever thought that the archives was a thing you make a deal with? like the National Archives around classified documents, that that's the way you think of the archives is like, yeah, we'll make a deal. And a deal that's in fact premised in some way on, <laughs> on potentially on deception. I just find those, both of those things kind of very Trumpian. You know, you said the thing, you know, the deal thing is, but again, I just want to point out how extraordinary it is. There is no, as far as I know, there's no other president for life. We've never even contemplated the notion of, hey, let's cut a deal with the archives for, they'll get these documents, we'll give them back those. And then the third thing, which is, man, he still really is obsessed with Russia. Those are the three things I draw from that story. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're drawing the correct things. I also think that everything is, in his mind, you know, there, there's a deal to be had on everything. What I'm actually reminded of is when he uh, had his first meeting with the intel chiefs um, when he was first elected during the transition, and right. they were briefing him on the, yep. the, the report about Russian interference. Uh, ironically, uh, a, the date of that briefing, I found out when I was researching for the book, was January 6th, 2017. So <laughs> January 6th sort of looms as an important date, um, you know, at the bookends of both of his presidency. Um, but he has this thing that he says to one of them, I think it was, it was, it was Brennan, you know, anybody can, anybody, if you pay them enough, they'll say anything. You know it and I know it. And that is how he views things. And so there's always a deal that can be had. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's always something that can be arranged. And, and everything, and this I think is really important and it gets to what you're asking. Context is irrelevant. That the situation is the same in every setting, no matter what the setting is. And so, you know, he praises, you know, the former Brooklyn Democratic machine party boss, in the same terms that he praises Xi Jinping, ruled with an iron fist. So in this case, it's, you know, you're making, we're literally talking about librarians, basically. And, and, and in his mind, there's sort of no difference in, in what deal you're cutting because everyone, everyone is the same and everything is flat and the same. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back on Hell and High Water uh, with the one and only queen of the Trump beat, Maggie Haberman, the author of the soon-to-be number one New York Times bestseller, Confidence Man, Making a Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. And we're back with uh, New York Times senior political reporter and really just the big foot of all big feet on the Trump beat. Maggie Haberman here on Hell and High Water. Your kind of unique understanding, uh, your particular understanding at least of Trump's, what motivates him, what animates him and how he thinks about the world and how that's kind of been a consistent through line through his, his rise to whatever you want to call it, prominence as a business figure, as a media figure, and then as president and now as former president is like one of the most interesting things about the book, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the breaking of America. Um, it's a really good subtitle, by the way. Um, I like I like I like puns. I like alliteration. I like rhymes. So that, this is a rhyming. It's a rhyming subtitle. You never forget that one. I want to play uh, as we as we dive now. Step back and kind of like d- dive into the book. Uh, the first thing I want to play is I want to play this the sound of uh, of Rona Barrett. 
1980. <laughs> oh, yes. For an unaired pilot, Rona Barrett, uh, for all you uh, kids who are too young to know who that is, you can Google Rona Barrett, um, once a very, very famous uh, woman in the television uh, world uh, interviewing Donald Trump. This is October 6, 1980, talking about Donald Trump's possibility that he might run for president one day. Why wouldn't someone like yourself run for political office? You have all the money that you possibly need. You've accomplished a great deal, even though you are only 34. I know there's a lot of things that you possibly can do in the years ahead. Why wouldn't you dedicate yourself to public service? Because I think it's a very mean life. I, I would love and I would, I would dedicate my life to this country, but I see it as being a mean life. And I also see it as somebody with strong views and somebody with the kind of views that are maybe a little bit unpopular, which may be right, but may be unpopular, wouldn't necessarily have a chance of getting elected against somebody with no great brain but a big smile. And that's a sad commentary for the political process. Television, in a strange way, has ruined that process, hasn't it? It's hurt the process very much. I mean, the Abraham Lincolns of the world. Abraham Lincoln would probably not be electable today because of television. He was not a handsome man, and he did not smile at all he would not be considered to be a prime candidate for the presidency. And that's a shame, isn't it? If you lost your fortune today, what would you do tomorrow? Maybe I'd run for president. I don't know. Just listening to that voice, you know, um, that voice of Donald Trump at 34, toying with the idea, starting to toy with the idea of running for president. And Maggie, um, you know, I know that one of the things about this book, you know, we had Peter Baker and Susan Glasser on the podcast, you know, where they kind of, did, their thing was, we're going to do the comprehensive book about Trump in the White House. This is like, I mean, there have been Trump biographies written before, but you, you, when you started on this, on, on thinking about, everybody was like, when's Maggie going to write a book? When's Maggie going to write a book? You were like, you wanted to do the life and, and the life through the frame of him ultimately becoming president, which I don't really think anybody else has done. So just talk a little bit about how you thought about what this would be when you first conceived it and, and went about executing it. Sure. So, um, I think that sound is amazing, the, the Rona Barrett, and I've heard it before, but it's it, it, it remains incredible every time. Um, I wanted to do something different. He is one of the most written about men on the planet, right? And so there have been so many books about his presidency, and, and, and most of them have been tremendous and superlative and, and have had, you know, scoops and, and revealed things and told us a lot about this presidency. You know, I, I had in mind a story that I was part of in late 2017 at the Times, just sort of explaining what Trump was like as a president. And that was sort of my mental framework for explaining his presidency. But part of how I went about writing that story was explaining and reporting it was explaining the world he came from. And so that was my framework that I decided I wanted to do for a book, which was, you know, this, this, this person and how he operates and the, this world of corruption and dysfunction that he hails from, and how that meant that the presidency really was foretold uh, a long time before it happened. And so, you know, the presidency is, is half the book, uh, but it's not intended to be an exhaustive review of the presidency. It is, it is, it is intended to show the through lines. And, and to the point that I made before, um, he is just contextless, right? It's just the same. I mean, he's literally... In the clip you just played, he's talking about how Abraham Lincoln's not good enough. He's not attracted enough to get elected president these days. Right. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing we heard him say a version of over and over and over again. Uh, and so I wanted to just show, you know, here is this sort of person kind of frozen in time and, and what that meant on a national stage. 
Well, of course, the other thing that's amazing in that clip is uh, is Trump talking about how televisions ruined the process. Of what I think many people would say, including probably you and me, that without television, I mean, television made, mm-hmm. you know, there is Trump, the, the phenomenon of Trump, the possibility of Trump being president is a purely a television yep. phenomenon. If he's not, if he's not the apprentice. Absolutely. Know, I've told the story a thousand times. I remember when we went up to do, uh, to do the focus groups that we did uh, at Bloomberg in the summer of 2015. Mm-hmm. And, and the people in those rooms with these Republican undecided voters, all of whom were, were supposed to be for yep. Jeb Bush, none of them were for Jeb Bush and all of them were for Trump. And they all were for Trump just because they, they had his image of yep. him. As a yep. as a builder, as a mogul, as a famous person, as just like us, but it was all from yep. the sh- from the TV. It was like Correct. that was it. That's where it all came from, right? And I and I don't think that pe- I don't think people um, fully appreciated that. I you know I, I I write about this and I had a very similar experience. Um, you know yours yours was earlier than mine. Mine was in the Iowa caucuses, and I was going up to people at this rally in Dubuque, Iowa, asking a very leading question. It was like, are you, you know, are you here because the show is about to stop basically? Cause he's yeah. going to lose of course. And, yeah. Yeah. um, and they, you know, one person after another said they were caucusing for him. One guy looked at me like I had eight heads. Yeah. And when I asked him, why are you going to caucus? He said, I watched him run his business and he meant the apprentice. And yes. so, and I was not, I was not an apprentice fan. I will tell you, Roger Stone actually said this, um, years ago, to me uh, in, in the 2016 campaign uh, in the course of an interview, he was talking about the impact The Apprentice had and that the line between, you know, you obviously know this, I know this, but that the line between news and entertainment for people on the other side of the screen, you know, is it does not exist. And yes, so right. that this was, you know, that this was the magic of television was not, was not really understood. What that guy said to you in Dubuque is actually something even beyond that the boundary between news and entertainment doesn't exist. That's the bound. That's that guy is telling you that for him, the boundary between television and reality doesn't exist. That's like, that, that's, that is correct. I watched Donald Trump run his yeah. businesses because I watched The Apprentice. It's like, um, correct. Hello, this is not the Truman Show. That's not like really a business. No, it's it was, but, but, but a lot of, but people thought it was. I know. know? No, I, mean, I know. They, really, they believe it. It, it was, it was and, something. And I, and I think it's funny because I do think it's one of the things. And I, whenever I use this, these two words together, I get yelled at. I know you do too. You know, it's one of the geniuses of Donald Trump is that he understood that. He did understand it. He wasn't, he wasn't an idiot about this. He understood certain things about the way that television, fame, um, the, the reality that we now inhabit. Yes. He understood that reality in a way that a lot of reporters didn't understand. Definitely all the other, a lot of the other candidates didn't understand. The way in which things had collapsed, um, that, that, that those those the synthetic reality, the simulacrum of reality in electronic media and the reality had collapsed and that in that collapse, it opened up these possibilities for people to, who would never be considered conventionally qualified for certain jobs to just be like, fuck you. I'm like, I'm as qualified as anybody else. Yeah. And he's it's funny. Trump is to your point. People don't like, you know, certain descriptions of him. He is much shrewder than people realize. And yes. one of the things about which he is shrewd is sort of a um, the darker aspects of human emotions and human behavior yeah. and uh, and what animates people. And that kind of goes back to that thing about if you pay anyone enough, um, he's obviously not right in certain settings, but he's certainly right in others. And so recognizing that, that that is how he has been effective, 
actually think it's important and that's part of what I wanted to try to explore here. Yeah. And and so let me let me just bring let me ask you one question again, because I want to I want to live in the past a little bit more, but but just to live in the present. So, you know, we, we talked about the stories that you broke last week while at the same time you were uh, uh, launching this book, the public the publication of the book. And I just asked you why you wrote the book, what you thought you were trying to do in the one week. Basically, the book's been out. What what's it been like? What's the reaction been? Like? What's your what's been your reaction to the reaction of the book? Which is to say, like, are you are people receiving the book in the way you in, that you hoped they would? Are you surprised by how people are reading it? Are you, um, you know, I'm not asking you if it's been fun or it's been gratifying. Although I hope it has been for you because you know you deserve congratulations, like as as everyone who writes a book of substance does. But I'm curious about whether you're surprised by what people have fastened onto or it's been exactly what you thought. You're like, you knew there were certain things that were newsy. And so people would, 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 ju- would jump at those things. Like, you know, as you reflect on your first week as a first time book author, like what's, a, what's your reflection on how people are reading your book? Um, I, I've been very, um, I've been overwhelmed by the response to it. And, and, and I'm very grateful. A couple of things, John, you've known me a really long time. I'm kind of a, uh, a catastrophist. So I, you know, look for, 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 I, I, I'm, my eyes are down on the ground. Um, it's, you know, and you know this, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of work writing a book and you have no idea how it's going to be received and people are entitled to engage with it however they want. But I have been very, um, I've been, I've been really gratified that from, from most of what I have, have seen, um, people genuinely or generally seem to understand what the goal was of writing this book and, and what it was hoping to accomplish. And, um, and that makes me, that makes me really happy and seem to have taken something away from it. So it's great. There's been some things that people have seized on as news. And again, the other thing you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago was, do you think there's things in here that are going to be bombshells that people are going to, uh, that are going to really dominate coverage. And you said, there's some news in the book, but this is not like, that's what thought what this was. That's right. not what I was trying to do. And right. I think that actually probably surprised some people because there are people who think of you as Maggie Haberman's scoop machine. And that, that what you would get was this endless, number of news nuggets that would pour out of the book. And again, there has been some news. So I want to play one thing that people, the, the first thing people seized on, and sure. you put out the, the, you put out the audio of it, which mm-hmm. is your discussion with Trump, your interview with Trump, uh, where you talked about the love letters from Kim Jong-un. This one got people's attention in different, in, and had different kinds of reactions to it. But let's hear you interviewing Trump. What's the date of this interview? When did you actually interview him before this? Do you remember? Uh, this, this one was September 16th, 2021 at Bedminster. Did you leave the White House with anything in particular? Are there any memento documents you took with you? Anything of note? Not, nothing of great urgency. No. Okay. I have great things there. You know, uh, the letters, the Kim Jong-un mm-hmm. letters, I had many of them. You were able to take those with you? Look at what's happening. Wow. No, I, th- I think that has the, I think that's in the uh, archives. But most of it is in the archives. Okay. But the Kim Jong Un letters—we have incredible things. I have incredible letters with other leaders. I think you described you how you your attitude in asking this question was sort of like you know, what should we just say fanciful or like there's some you know, adjective that you were kind of you were fishing basically on a on a on a lark. On a lark. I, it was what I said, right. and yeah, it was. I asked it because um, those of us who who cover the White House day to day knew that he had a particular fascination with these letters, to your point, the love letters. But what we knew was that he would wave them at people, you know, and he would show them to reporters, visiting dignitaries. And it it sparked enormous alarm among his aides that he would would do that. And I also know that he has this love of trophies. So um, 
Having been to Trump Tower, I think you have too. He likes to, you know, show off the tchotchkes that he just Shaquille O'Neal's shoe and, and so forth. And covers and, and all that. Yeah. Right, exactly. So I asked Donald Lark if he took anything, and and his immediate impulse was to say no, no nothing of great urgency. Right. And then he starts saying something about the Kim Jong-un letters. It was not entirely clear. It was mush, this whole statement. Yes. Uh, and then I was sort of surprised um, because he was like, we have them. And I was like, you took those with you? And he kept talking and he, but he you can't hear that on the audio but in the in the room he sort of flinched when i said it like something i i can't explain it something kind you of triggered something you triggered he, something and then and then and i said wow and then he heard he sort of registered my surprise and and says no 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 i think those are in the archives but we have great things so it's it, it was not at all clear what this whole exchange meant um you know until much later, and it takes right. on much more relevance, frankly, after August eighth, when the FBI searches Mar-a-Lago. Um, it was it, it was interesting to me that his first impulse was to say no. And I'll, and I'll say that um, I'm going to ask a specific question about this. There's a general sure. thing you and I have discussed in the past that, which is the incredibly, uh, and I I've said before, and I'll say again, I think unwarranted, shocking, almost inexplicable. Uh, polarizing effect that you have in your reporting has on people. And we can have a larger discussion about that maybe a little later. But in this case, I want to like, as I often do in these matter, in these things, I, I want to take your side on, on something because th- there was a reaction to this, which was like, immediately it was like, Maggie had this back in 2021 and she didn't, he, she knew he'd taken this stuff and she didn't report it at the New York Times. And I'm like, right. listen to that sound. Right. I have had the experience of interviewing Donald Trump on more than one occasion. And this is one of the challenges of interviewing Trump. He talks in when he wants to. He talks in 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 gibberish cones. You can't understand what he's saying. It's like you look what it's like. It's like nothing of great urgency. Okay, you say I have great things here. (laughs) You know, the letters, the Kim Jong Un letters. I have many of them. And then you're like. You were able to take those with you, which is the natural you're following him at this point. Yep. And then it's like, he's like, look at what's happening. Yep. And you're kind of like going, wait, did he just tell me that he took those letters? And then he says, no, I think that that's in the uh, archives, but most of it is in New York City. The Kim Jong-un letters, we have incredible things. I have incredible letters with other leaders. It's like, if you literally parse that as English, it's, it's just gibberish. It's like there's no – he's not actually – you can't really just say, oh, there's a definitive statement. And as soon as you ask a question, he moves to fuzz the thing up in a way that – and I, I swear to God, if Maggie, you know this. If you spent – if you said, wait, stop, we're going to spend a half an hour, that, whatever it takes right now, I'm going to try to get clarity from you on this point, yeah. he would talk you into the ground and you would still never get the answer. He, would, right. he would have a way to, to phrase these incredibly artful in how he – the word salad is not – it's not word salad. It's like the lettuce leaves are really carefully arranged to Correct. look like word salad to keep him from being able to be totally pinned down. And that's another thing people don't understand about Trump. And you're doing this in real time as the reporter trying to follow it. And it's fucking hard. He one of his um, one of the things with him is it, 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 you, and you just nailed what a challenge is with him is he he seems like he's all over the place when you're interviewing him. And it's very hard to pin him down. But he's actually in his head often very aware of what line he's crossing or not crossing. And that's what the significance of that audio was to me. Um, you know, and it was, it was, it was not clear at all what we were talking about. <laughs> right. um, were you, were you, I suppose you were not the least surprised that people immediately uh, were like, Maggie withheld news. Maggie's been yeah. saving this for her book. I find like, I think, okay, um, yeah. I didn't interrupt you. I'm sorry. I, um, listen, I think that there are, um, 
I, I point to social media on this, which is basically everyone is in a constant state of excitement, emotional excitement. And so yeah. what ends up happening is they hear something and the assumption is, you know, that it's the worst. Um, you know, and, and John, if I, um, if I heard that a reporter was told explicitly that by Donald Trump, yes, I have classified material, it's down there, um, and the reporter sat on it, I'd be outraged too, but that isn't yes, what happened. Of course, and of so course. what I what I would hope was that, you know, in explaining to people, you know, a I would hope that people would would read what he actually said, and then I hope they will listen to what he said, and and I hope they will they will uh, understand and accept that. And if they don't, there's not much I can do about it. Well, and and look, I mean, I do want to I do want to ask you to answer this question straight up because sure. again, it's a question that it's a question that in on game change and double down, I mm-hmm. always would get, which was like, you know. And it's grown. This this general criticism, I would say, of Trump, of all people who write about presidents or presidential candidates, and they're now it's a, obviously a large industry. Trump has spawned a lot of a lot of book sales. This criticism now has become become more amplified by Trump, like a lot of things, which has been aimed at people in our profession who write books. Which is, you know, you all are just saving all the best shit for your book, and you're thereby betraying the public. Then that has been leveled at you. It's been leveled mm-hmm. at me. It's been leveled mm-hmm. at a lot of people. And one of the things that's been that I was always able to say in the context of the campaign books, which was 100% true, was 90% of the interviews that that we would do for those books were after the election was over, when people mm-hmm. were freer to talk, and they you would not get the news that was in the books. It was almost all things that weren't told to us until after the mm-hmm. election was over. Mm-hmm. In real time, we didn't know those things. That and that was true. I'm curious about like what you know how you I know I've heard you kind of address this a little bit, but I mm-hmm. I think it's an important thing for for you and for the profession to try to make people understand how someone who is a working reporter uh, handles the question of trying mm-hmm. to cover a thing while you're also doing a book on the side, mm-hmm. um, and and how you partition those things off, and and what the dynamics of it are that allow you that that are that are in play. Let's put it that way. Yeah, so I can't look. I can't speak to how everybody in the profession does this. I can't speak to how, how, yeah, how I did it, which was, you know, I I turned in earnest to this after the second impeachment trial ended, which was, uh, I think, February 2021, Um, maybe maybe late February 2021. Um, You know, I was I was writing for the paper almost every day during that period of time. I continued to your point writing for the paper. My experience doing this book was that it took time. It took time to go back and revisit. You know with people who told me new things or I asked questions about things that we had reported in real time, but I learned more information about. Um, you know, I learned entirely new things, such as him telling people that he was not going to leave the White House. Um, you know, I did not know that in real time. And if I had, it would have been in the paper. Um, and so, you know, and I was in, in pretty frequent contact with my Times editors. Uh, and And then they decided what they thought was best for the for the Daily Report and and uh, and what wasn't. It's not like you weren't breaking news during this period. I mean, like the you know when I would hear people say you know when this criticism comes up, I'm like you know I, I seem to remember pictures of of documents flushed down toilets that Maggie put put in the newspaper in real time. Like if if mm-hmm. her if her interest was saving all of the big scoops for the book, why are we seeing these things? Like that's a pretty big scoop. That was yeah. That was the um, president flushing things down down the toilet. I, I reported on that eight months ago, and then I um, I came upon photos, you know, more recently, and made those public as well. Right. So, so I think there's like there's yeah. And yes, I came upon photos. Just to be clear to people who are listening, photos of torn up documents in toilets with his handwriting on them. One thing I can say, and I don't want to sound too much like a 
I mean, you know, I'm, you know, we're friends and I admire your work like off the charts, but, and I I don't want to sound defensive about this, but like the one thing I know about you is that you're, and everybody who knows you knows is that you are hyper competitive, you know, insanely competitive and like competition drives you like as much as any reporter I've ever met. And the idea that like, you know, that you would, what you would do is let, is let the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or right. some other reporter beat you on a story of enormous consequence in real time. It's just it's unfathomable to me. It's just unfathomable. No. Like it's so, I, yeah, yeah, you, would, I, you would melt. You would like, it would be spontaneous human combustion <laughs> is more likely than that. Like, like if you had to sit on something like that and watch like, no. you know, Carol Lenning uh, beat you on the story in the Washington Post, you would explode. Like literally explode. I, <laughs> I don't like getting beat. I, I, uh information that is is confirmed and reportable my goal is to get it out uh, as soon as possible all right we're going to take one more quick break and then we'll be back with more of helen highwater with more of the maggie haberman author of the new book confidence man the making of donald trump and the breaking of america And we're back on Hell and High Water with uh, Maggie Haberman of the New York Times, queen of the Trump beat, king of the Trump beat, you know, r- ultimate ruler of the Trump beat over the course of the last decade or so, and also the author of this new book that everyone is, in fact, talking about, and which I'm certain is going to rocket to the top of the New York Times bestseller list uh, next week, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. Um, I want to step back in history again, uh, step back you know, into the past a little bit, and and and, and play some sound that takes us back uh, on, a, on a little time machine, uh, a little time travel and a little time machine here, um, because it, it helps to inform the topic I really want to get to, which is about the way in which you are kind of uniquely situated to become what you've become, which is kind of by common consensus, the kind of definitive uh, Trump reporter of the Trump era. And um, I think, you know, you, you, you're you're obviously incredibly hard. You work incredibly hard. You've covered many other things besides Donald Trump. You've broken a lot of news on every story you've ever covered. Uh, you work really hard. Uh, you you're you're really scrupulous as a reporter. You're really competitive. Uh, you're really smart. But there's something about the, the about the background that you have, and, the, and which we'll talk about, that kind of I think puts you in the right. You know, there's a some of that's happenstance, right? And it puts you in the right place to be able to understand Trump in a way that a lot of other people didn't. And so to to get there, let's play this clip from 1987 when you were probably not even in high school, but um, let's Donald Trump uh, in 1987 on Late Night with David Letterman, uh, once again, as he was with Rona Barrett here talking about the possibility of running for president. How much are you worth right now as you're sitting right here? <laughs> Zero idea, David. It depends on what's happening with the world and the market. You're unquestionably one of the most successful men in the country, if not the world, and also one of the wealthiest. So give us a figure that we might ponder here. <laughs> you'll never get it out of me, David. You'll never get it out of me. You'll try, but you'll never get it. Let's get something like I, you know, I how, read, we're, how we're going to become more successful. Let's I, talk about that. I read something uh, this afternoon that said in, a, in the bank right now you have $500 million in cash. In cash. Is that a fair? Which paper did you read that in? Well, I can't divulge those sources. You have to give me, to give me the news. No, no, just tell me. Is that not true or is that close? Am I nuts here? Well, I don't know. I just, you have to tell me where you got that, David. This is a very unusual interview, folks. <laughs> um, 
you you won't put a figure, just an imaginary never figure. Have, never would. Uh, a billion. You're worth a billion dollars. Perhaps. 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 David Letterman would have been a good uh, White House correspondent during the Trump era. Right? <laughs> yes, like, he I mean, he's pretty dogged, pretty dogged in that interview. Um, um, he, he was that was actually there was very well done. But I, I will tell you, John, I'm also kind of struck by the fact that it's 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 like every aspect of the Trump myth making that we know to be true. Right. And, and Letterman Letterman begins by saying, you know, you're one of the most you know, wealthiest and successful men in the world. And neither one of those things is true. And they just sort of go and say it wasn't true then. And it's like, um, he's much more successful now having been president. But, uh, you know, but it was anyway, it's very striking because that was the kind of thing that just got repeated over and over and over. And Trump just brick by brick built this artifice that that was who he was. And he was commensurate with all of these tycoons. And it's just it's wild. And and so here's here's where I want to, like, bring in the you're you're you were 14 years old, I think, in 1987, right? <laughs> was, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. So yeah. it's a time when a lot of people are coming kind of to a little bit of political consciousness. Your dad, Clyde, was like a, a longtime New York Times uh, correspondent and, uh, and had been a foreign wars correspondent, had, had the City Hall Bureau. You know, you were, a new, you were a newspaper kid born into a newspaper family. You're living in New York City. And you're, you had to have been aware at 14 of Donald Trump in some way. And I'm curious about what you're like, is that around the time when you first started to think like started to be aware of Trump as a, if you lived in New York City in that time, you, Trump was a big figure, a controversial figure, uh, you know, figure of bombast, a uh, figure who was in the media, in the tabloids. Uh, you know, what, do you remember what your earliest perceptions of Trump were as the daughter of Clyde Haberman and someone who was destined to kind of already interested in journalism by that early age? So in fairness, I was not actually interested in journalism at that age, but I was, okay. um, but I was um, aware of Donald Trump because he was less so just that, you know, how controversial he was, but uh, but at that point, and this is before his divorce with Ivana, um, but he had he was just everywhere, yes. and you know that's one of the ways in which he was successful was just making himself um, so totally ubiquitous. He was part of pop culture in a, in a phenomenal way. You know, the fact that he was on Letterman speaks to that a little bit because there aren't a lot of actual tycoons who were going on Letterman, right? Um, but so. He was in. He was referenced in movies. I was actually, um, I was rewatching the movie Mystic Pizza the other day. I have a, a chronic thing of rewatching movies. Um, and, and, so and Mystic, I, I and Mystic went, Pizza went, is a good one to and rewatch. Mystic Pizza, Mystic Pizza was on Amazon. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a bit where there's a Robin Leach segment, you know, talking about Mar-a-Lago, and you just forget how how ubiquitous he was. So that was my awareness of him. But it was, you know, it was the pop culture rendition of Trump, not the actual rendition, which is the one that people who were part of New York City's, you know, true establishment rolled their eyes at. Um, and, and then his divorces happen. And then he become, you know, we were all aware of, you know, of him and Ivana and, and, and Marla Maples. Uh, but, but he was sort of, it was, he just was sort of always there. I don't know how else to describe it. When yeah. I was um, yep. in elementary school, our our teacher who did a unit on architecture took us to go see the lobby at Trump Tower because it had that it has that orange waterfall. <laughs> and so that was that was probably my earliest awareness. Um, you, and you wanted she, a field you wanted a field trip. We went on like, a field in, trip to Trump okay, Tower. Like, yep. I, I just want to really yep. pause and think about that for a second. Remember your remember your time in grade school when you wanted the kind of field trips you would go on, like the Museum of National History or That's not you know, what this was. Uh, yeah, in California, I don't know. We would go to you know, you go to, to to the Griffith Observatory if you lived in L.A. Like I did. That's um, cool. Guys, I like that. 
yes, right, go and look at Griffith Observatory, look mm-hmm. at the stars, whatever, you know, oh, nighttime field yep. trip, great. You guys are going to the lobby of Trump Tower. We went to the lobby of Trump Tower. In fairness, it wasn't the only thing that we did. I, I know, we, but we it was one of the, it was on the, it was, it was, it was on, on the, the list. It was on yeah. the list. No, it was, I was, it was either fourth or fifth grade. And it was, um, I can remember the teacher's name, but, uh, but yeah, this was, this was my first introduction. And, and because we were experiencing this, actually, I guess this gets to your question, but because we were experiencing this, you know, as kids, I was probably 10, um, there was this reverence around, this is part of the architecture visit that yes. we're doing. And that's, you know, that so much, this, it just goes back to, it goes to two things, I think. And I, I explore this in the book, but, yes. you know, he, he was never what he said he was, ever. He was never, right. you know, as I said before, what his description of himself on Letterman, neither of those things is true. But there was enough real there yeah. that people outside of New York City and even within New York City in certain circles just saw him as a rich guy. Right. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, he's not, you know, I, I think about you, you will remember this moment. There was a moment at the, um, at the Democratic National Convention in 2016, and yeah. I think that we saw some of it with the Mike Bloomberg campaign again in 2019, a big Bloomberg thing was that Trump's not a real rich guy. Right. But, like, <laughs> average voters hearing, like, one billionaire, you know, dissing another billionaire <laughs> no. just doesn't... So that there, I think, I think that gets lost on people, frankly, in terms of part of why he resonates and why people, you know, they look up at Trump Tower and they're like, I don't know, that looks like a pretty big building to me. He built that. So I think that's part of the part of the issue in terms of trying to establish a baseline. baseline. Well, yes. And look, I mean, here's the here's the thing. Like when I saw when Tish James got up the other day and and, and Mm -hmm. did her civil suit against Trump and rattled off all the Mm -hmm. things, you know, the Mm -hmm. various frauds Mm -hmm. that she was claiming the civil suit and that she said there might be criminal liability for. I always think, you know, in my glib you know, uh, in my glib way, I'm always like, yeah, the biggest fraud's the one you can't you can't prosecute him for, which is his whole life is his whole image is a, is a fraud is fraudulent. But but like every great fraud, like really great frauds, real like how con men actually work, they don't work off nothing. They're, like, no, there's not, always not, there's not, something not, there's, there. There's, yeah, there's got to right. be a kernel of there's got to be a kernel of truth. You can't be a confidence man. It's a cite the title of your book is if you're if you're just if you're just pitching bullshit. If it's purely divorced from reality, people see through that. If there's nothing there, there has to be enough there that you can make the hustle work. And and so, uh, w- one of the things I you know you just said this thing that's really important, which is he was in New York, not where I grew up, but and not most of the country until until The Apprentice. But prior to that, in New York, he was the atmosphere. He was everywhere mm-hmm. in, in tabloid culture, in 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 local news. Uh, there was no internet then, but but. But he was, he was just, he felt like he was a rat. Everybody who lived in New York in that time says, you know, Trump was just inescapable. And, yep. and I, I, we'll talk about Sharpton in a second, but because another figure in that time who was also inescapable and was like kind of the mirror image of, in some ways of Trump was, was Al Sharpton. But, but what is it, having, having studied it now, not just lived mm-hmm. through it as, again, daughter of a journalist, uh, hyper aware, hyper smart kind of paying attention to what's around you, maybe not yet a journalist a journalist in training, but someone who lives in a house where people read the newspaper mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> yes. and write the yes. newspaper, right? You know, you now studied it, right? You've now reported on it, gone back and looked at it, that it was an important key element to what mm-hmm. this book is actually about. Mm-hmm. When you mm-hmm. think about it now, like what's the explanation for how he did that? How did he, like, what was the thing that Trump was doing? That's what he wanted. He wanted to be the atmosphere. He wanted to be the environment. And a lot of people want to be that and can't pull it off. Why him? Uh, it's a, that's a, an excellent question. 
I think a couple of things, and I do think this one gets overlooked, you know, um, and I'll tell you why it's on my mind. I, I had a conversation with somebody who was talking about another candidate running for office this cycle. I'm not going to say who, but they said, you know, Trump, Trump sees himself in that person. You know, they're both working class people, you know, who have been frowned on by the elites. And Donald Trump is not a working class person, but he has convinced all of these people. He grew up as a, a son of privilege for whom a lot of things was hard, were hardwired. And I think that he came to just expect that was always the way it was going to be. So if you grow up, Believing, and I think there are also just factors that are unique to his, you know, psyche and psychological makeup and so forth. And I'm just going to put that aside because I'm actually I'm I'm not a psychiatrist. But the but in terms of just why somebody would always believe things are going to work out for them, that was a part of why was they always had his father always sort of propelled him forward, even when his father was undermining and and you know in in Ivana Trump's words, brutal as a father. Um, it just move. It just if you grow up thinking that you're taken care of no matter what you do, you feel like you can get away with a lot, and I think that's a big piece of it. Yeah, I think that there's no there's no question that that's that that's the case, and um, I think that's right. And um, and and there's also just as you said, there's things that are very particular to him. You know, you think about New York in that period. I liked it. That you mm-hmm. know, you think about that. That you know, you talked about. You, I I played Rhoda Barrett, right? That's from early, you know. And, and I yeah. played the Letterman thing's '87. He's also on Oprah and Larry King in the late '80s, '87, yep. '88. He's on talking about maybe running for president. You know, that's yep. out there in the ether, right? Again, too iconic. Again, maybe the young people listening to this podcast don't know who Larry King uh, are. They know who <laughs> Oprah, you know, I, they, I am increasing. I'm increasingly finding that the touchstones. Right, are but not Oprah. Known, but but yes, they still know is, Oprah. Though. They still know Oprah. So, but that's again, to your point about him being a rare at that point. Before the total yep. veneration of the plutocrat class happened, the Jeff Bezos and the Mark Zuckerberg and, uh, you know, the Bill yep. Gates, all yep. that, he's the guy who can get invited on Oprah Winfrey and David Letterman yep. and Larry King yep. and sit down with Rona Barrett, all that stuff, right? That's right. And there's something about right. his, you know, his, he's a, it is that, that egregiously outside, the shamelessness is, at the, is part of the core of it, right? And the, and the willing yep. to, and the willingness to get the shit kicked out of him and just keep going. And, and I, you know, that's a very outer borough kind of thing. Not working class, but very outer borough. But outer borough, no, that is true. And well, and it's also, I, but I do think part of it is it's going to work out for me no matter what. So if I tune it out and I think that you, you touched on this, but I think it's worth exploring a little more. He doesn't process cover news coverage the way other people do to your point about getting the shit kicked out of you. He, uh, stories that would, would have other people, you know, either hiding under a blanket or, or you know, completely ashamed. Right. He loves, you know, he does not, He it's all attention, it's all fame. Now, there are certain stories he does not like. Things questioning his worth, right? right. Tim O'Brien yes. uh, can, can talk about that for a long period of time. Neil Barsky, who was at the Wall Street Journal, did enormous reporting about, uh, you know, Trump's financial problems and Trump went after Barsky with a vengeance. Um, what has made Trump the angriest in my coverage over time, in my experience, and, and he's gotten angry about a number of stories, he was angry when I reported that Mark Meadows cried in the White House because that's a weakness thing. Right. He was angry, and then he stood at the podium and attacked me for two minutes um, right. in the briefing room. Yep. He was angry that I said on television that he watches a lot of television, which he only knew because he was watching television. <laughs> but to him... The the idea that that you you know your talk about how much TV he watches to him gets at your questioning his intellect, right? 
And then things that question his strength yeah. or his manhood. Yeah. So that's, you know, the bunker, that he went to the bunker when he was in the White House in 2020 during the protests. Just things like that. Well, and it's interesting, again, all of them, they all loops back to to the theme of this book, which is entitled, I'll say again, <laughs> Confidence Man. He's a confidence man, right? What if the If you're running a scam, if your image is a fraud and you're a confidence man, literally, and you know, we just stipulated the truth, which is that certain things have to be there has to be like some nuggets that are believed and have mm-hmm. a, there's enough there for people to hang on mm-hmm. to, right? So money, mm-hmm. like all, like the whole con falls apart if people start to think he's actually not rich. The whole con falls apart if people think, start to think that he's actually weak. The whole con falls apart if people start to think he's stupid. I'm not saying he is stupid. I'm saying like the, those all the things that make him most upset in the coverage are the things that would most directly threaten the con, like, I think that's what, that's, that's what holds all the three of those things together. Because once you think he's an idiot who's not worth any money and is actually kind of a, a weak guy, what's left of well, Trump then? Those are, those are like, that's the whole thing. It's also, it relates to why he is actually, uh, why he talks so often about his win-loss record in primaries, right? It's the same idea. It's, and, and it's, it's polling, polling and it's polling. you make yourself seem bigger, you make yourself seem stronger. I mean, this is part of why, you know, McConnell... Dis, the the, the uh, minority leader decided uh, in the last year that he wasn't going to pay attention to Trump was, you know, he loves negative attention. We're just not going to give it to him. And he's really not that big. Right. But he still controls a significant aspect of the party, number one, and ignoring him doesn't work. Yep. So yep. it just goes to your it goes to your point. So, so to go back to I mentioned Sharpton, I, I really want to I want to hear you on this because you write about it in mm-hmm. the book. And, and I find Sharpton incredibly fascinating as a character. You know, there's a new Sharpton uh, mm-hmm. doc that, that got premiered at Tribeca and is going to come out in December. It's called Loudmouth. And I, 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 that the parallels between Trump I didn't know and, about this. The, the parallels between okay. yeah, it's a it's a very well done I will say very well done documentary about Sharpton, and it's about this era in New York City when mm-hmm. what I like to think of as the last dangerous, the really da- when people now talk about the crime rate in New York City, I laugh at them. I'm like, it's you ridiculous. should have been in New York in 1988 or 1989. Yeah, no. We're like, I'm a big guy. I grew it's, up in LA yeah. and I went to school in Chicago, yeah. and I would come to New York and be like. How far is the distance from the cab to the ATM? Like, like that was like a period of time when people were genuinely like, uh, you know, yeah. you felt yeah. like no, at any right. given moment, like an air conditioner was going to fall on your head. You know, it was like that that's kind right. of thing. So those that's two right. guys thrived in that environment, right? Yep, they did. And, they and, did. and Loudmouth could be the title of a Donald Trump documentary also. Talk about Sharpton and Trump and, and their... The, the parallels between them and their relationship, which what they were entangled on things like the Central mm-hmm. Park jogger case, they were kind of the two iconic figures of that period in New York. And I do think if understanding one helps you to understand the other, in this case, understanding Sharpton helps you to understand Trump because he's our topic today. I'm so glad that you picked up on that and asked about it, because one of the things that uh, I, I explore in, in the book is, uh, you know, how Trump was defined in this crucible in New York City in relation to race, in relation to sex, um, you know, in in the 1980s. And Sharpton, to your point, was an avatar, right? Um, He was was a a very uh, vocal leader, uh, antagonist of certain elected officials, but he also dealt with Trump. It wasn't, you know, just all hostile. Uh, I I spoke to one uh, person who told me that they had bumped into, this isn't in the book, but that they had bumped into Trump on, on, this person was on his way into an Aldamato fundraiser, I think at Trump's hotel at the Grand Hyatt in 1986. And Trump was flanked by Don King on one side and Al Sharpton on the other. And Sharpton was another 
you know, I figure in and in many ways creature of the tabloids. Yes. Another person who just refused to get thrown out of his ring. Right. Another person, you know, from the outer boroughs who made his way into Manhattan and stayed there. And they dealt with each other on a number of issues, including there was there was some issue that Trump was having with construction in relation to his Chicago project. And he brought in Sharpton to help him with black contractors. And so they they dealt with each other. Sharpton said this thing to me about how he went... <laughs> Uh, you know, Trump had a relationship with Mike Tyson. You know, Trump's relationships with with uh, with black sports figures was really those were sort of the only uh, uh, people who uh, were of color who he had close relationships with. Um, and it was you know it was a transaction because either they were famous or because Trump owned the New Jersey Generals at one point, yeah. um, or because Trump had you know boxing as an, as an attraction at the casinos, <laughs> and so that's how Sorry. he became close with Tyson. Tyson and Trump had a very uh, complicated relationship too, including Tyson at one point accusing Trump of, of sleeping with Tyson's yeah. wife, Robin Givens. Right. Um, yeah. but, uh, but at one point Tyson moves into a new house in um, Connecticut and the neighbors in this very white enclave are not happy about Tyson being there. And so Sharpton shows up at this party that Tyson is throwing. He goes upstairs and he sees Trump and Don King having a conversation about how much money there could be gotten in basically in a payoff Right. To, to move right. because right. the neighbors are so upset. So how do they? And he said that he realized that if, if Trump had been born black, he would have been Don King because yep. everything with the two of them was a transaction. I don't think that that's true of Sharpton, that everything is a transaction. But I do think that Sharpton is, uh, you know, is an operator over a long period of time and a survivor uh, in a way that Trump is, too. Yeah, and I think, look, there, I, I, I do not think there's a very large differences between Al Sharpton and, and Don King. And I think there that, are. That, 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 reading that in the book and seeing, but I think Sharpton's right about maybe Trump wouldn't have been Don King because Don King is, you know, even more, I would say, even more clownish and, and, and than, than Trump. But but there's a definitely, it's a, smart, it's a smart perception on Sharpton's part. And it gets to this other thing, the thing you just said, Maggie, which is like, they were survivors. They came from the outer boroughs. They yep. wanted a seat at the table in Manhattan. That yearning exactly. for elite yep. establishment respectability drove both of them. And they were just like, I'm going to, I, you know, I'm going to ask to be admitted. And if I'm not, if yep. I'm not, if I don't gain entrance, uh, if they don't open the door, I'm going to bust it down. That's right. I'll get in another way. That's right. And that's what that's I think right. now I come, this is where I want to come back to you just about one thing in here is like, you have maybe some people would just, you know, I've heard people, Maggie's basically a tabloid reporter. And I'm like, yeah, right. You know, but that's. But is that supposed to be a knock on her, on her? Like, you know, I think you learn certain things. You learn certain things at the New York Daily News and at the New York Post that put yep. you in a position to cover Donald yeah, Trump. That's true. I mean, that a bit made you a good reporter. But let's start with that. But more importantly, I think having been simmered in, marinated in, and simmered in those sauces for before you broke out and and made your way to uh, to Politico and then ultimately the Times. Like, I want you to talk about that. Like, what was it about tabloid? About about your tabloid background covering uh, New York politics that that gave you that equipped you in a, for a particular way uh, for the rise of Trump, but like you know that like you could that you helped you to understand him where he came from even in the earliest phases of his uh, candidacy that, that gave you a kind of a leg up on people because you were I mean obviously the the, the, the it affects your metabolism your scrappiness your competitiveness but also I think it gave you a, it, it give you a window into Trump that a lot of people didn't have 
So I think that it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I do think that that is, that is just the one difference that I have is coming from the same world that he does and, and having worked at the, you know, the papers he was obsessed with. Um, I'll, I'll answer it in two ways. One is the tabloids, in particular, the New York Post, wrote a lot about grievance and a lot about racial tribalism. And I think that that was the milieu that, that Trump incorporated into his political persona pretty, and his public persona pretty early on. He found it sold. It certainly sells in the pages of the tabloids. So that was one thing, um, you know, especially during the era of, of the Giuliani mayoralty. There were notorious instances of police brutality toward unarmed black men. And the reaction that the city had uh, was part of it. I think part of it was also the uh, coverage around, and frankly, Trump's behavior around the Central Park jogger case, um, which was 1989, when a, a white woman who worked on Wall Street was jogging in the park. She was, you know, brutalized and raped. And uh, a, a group of young teenagers uh, were arrested, their confessions coerced. Right. Uh, they were ultimately, their convictions overturned. But Trump took out this full page ad calling to bring back the death penalty. Yes, right. Bring back the death penalty, bring back our police. You know, the New York Post was just unapologetically pro-cop. Um, and, and, you know, in a, in a way that the Daily News really was not, although they, they sort of got there. So that's part of it. And then there's just the unique way that Trump operates. And I'll give you a for instance that I write about. Um, a, a former deputy page six editor named Jeannie McIntosh, who I should just for disclosure, I wrote a book with, um, you know, almost 20 years ago. And she is a close friend. But she had this incident that she had told me about years earlier, and it's in the book, where yeah, yeah. she calls Trump, I think she spoke to his assistant Norma, in 1997, in May, saying that she had gotten a tip that Marla Maples had bought, I think it was two gold Lexuses on 11th Avenue, and Trump made her return them. And Trump did not want that he had made her return them out there. And of course, he makes her return them because he's still coming out of his financial problems, but he doesn't want that out there. So he he offers Jeannie a trade. I have something better if you won't write that. Uh, I'm, I'm divorcing Marla. And he proceeds to explain to her that... Um, He'll keep her on for the Miss Universe pageant because she gets ratings, you know, but he, he doesn't like her family and she's always surrounded by these quote unquote dumb Southerners. And the idea that somebody would call a newspaper and do that about their <laughs> wife yeah. is quite telling, um, you know, and so, but it's, but I will say, you know, fast forward three years later and I'm, I'm at City Hall covering, you know, Rudy Giuliani dumping his wife by press conference, right? So it's like, this was the world we lived in. And so that wasn't surprising. And then I guess the third aspect, John, is the the Trump approach to media, which is both, you know, I'm going to punch you, and then I'm going to come back and say, hey, it's not that bad. I didn't knock your teeth out. You know, Giuliani and his aides used to call the New York Post city desk yeah. all the time, all night long, screaming and ranting about this and that. And that was not the experience of dealing with the Bloomberg administration the same way. It was not that, you know, I, I don't think the Koch folks worked the same way. I know the de Blasio folks didn't, so I, at least not consistently. So I think that just prepared me for what his White House would be like. Yeah. I mean, you have a psychodrama going with Trump, right? And 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 there's a, you know, he, he berates you, but also praises you. It certainly seems like he needs you in some way, that there's something that maybe... 
you know, he's always like, I got, you know, trash Maggie Haberman. Then he's supposed to do an interview with you. So do you think that part of what he, part of what that, that your, that your tabloid background, that you're, again, I'll just rather, I, again, it sounds negative coming out of my mouth because I, you know, I don't mean it that way. What I mean is having marinated in the juices of the, of, of, of city politics and history, your, your biography and your, your, uh, your metabolism and your, and your competitiveness and all of that stuff. Do you think that's part of why he has a, what, what seems to be a unique kind of off again, on again, love, hate relationship with, with the way you cover it? It seems like he has, a, he has, he definitely exhibits some kind of fixation on you and, and, and appreciates and despises your coverage simultaneously in kind of acute ways is, do you think that that background that he like, that he sees a little bit of the New York that's in him, in you, and that's part of what drives the, the, the complex feelings he has about you. So I would say a couple things. He's a, he's a subject who I cover, no different than I covered Clinton, I covered Rudy, I covered Bloomberg. You know, more from a remove, I covered three presidents. Um, I, it's a little more intense with him just because he, he processes news coverage differently. I think he's fixated on the New York Times, John. I really do. And I think one of the things I would urge your listeners who are podcast listeners to go listen to is an episode in February 2019 of the Daily, yep. you know, the, the New York Times podcast, um, which I'm not doing cross pollination here, but there's a reason I'm mentioning it, which is it was an episode in which A.G. Salzberger and then President Trump at the Oval Office over the Resolute Desk with Peter Baker and me sitting nearby have this back and forth about Trump's belief of what the New York Times should be doing for him. And he literally says at one point, I think I'm entitled to a good story from my paper. He was just complaining about coverage. And I asked him at one point, you know, what is it you think that the role of the press is? Yeah. I really wanted to hear what the answer was. And he said to cover, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it was to yeah. cover events accurately and fairly. It was not, you know, your key to a democracy. It was not, that is what he thinks. And so I think it's much more, Can I think it's about can you imagine him ever saying to hold powerful interest to account? Right. No. And so, no, no, no. To, to provide a vital service to the Republic. And so, I mean, it was literally to serve as sort of, you know, a reflection of the people in power. Yeah. And so, um, and I thought, but this is why I, why I was interested in hearing what he was going to say. But so I think it is really about the times which he has, um, and I'm just the person who covers him the most often. I think the fact that I have a New York background may be part of it. I knew him before he was a candidate that maybe, maybe, accentuates it but it really is about the paper because there's plenty of people who covered him well you know who anyway i i think it's about the paper look come on i do now come on look there's 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 like the, these quotes you know about your i mean that where he says you know he's been quoted saying i love being with her she's like my psychiatrist but, you know? the, but it doesn't he said I mean, he's I've never seen a, a psychiatrist but if i did i'm sure it would be as good as i now look hearing donald trump talk about the process of therapy of course is a meaningless line on some level um it is but, a meaningless line. It's meant to flatter. It's not meant to. It doesn't. It's not evocative of anything. He is. He treats well, everybody but, like they are his psychiatrist. He is working okay, it out. Fair enough. I, and again, I don't want to like. Spend, I don't want to. I just remember like you know. I have a, remember having a very vivid in twenty six in, in nineteen ninety six sitting on a on a campaign bus with uh with Marinus and uh and Mike McCurry. And, I and love it. I love a Bill Clinton story. Up, okay. uh, I forget where we were, but we were out on the road someplace in the waiting days of the 1996 campaign. And uh, and and McCurry got on the bus and said it was Mar Marinus was it was like Clinton was ready for Marinus, and he went in there. And Mike sat down next to me on the bus, and I said, uh, I said, how long? Is, like he said, uh, I said, how long is Marinus going to get with Clinton? He said, I, he said it's scheduled for 30 minutes, but it could go three hours. I don't know. <laughs> I said, well, like, how does Clinton think about that? 
he said, Clint says all the time, he says, I hate, uh, oh, do I really have to see Marinus again? I, I don't want to be put on the couch today. I don't want to be put on the couch today. I got to see Marinus. And then he comes in for 30 minutes and he spends three hours with him, you know? And and I always remember that because it was so, I, I thought not just a Clinton story, but a story about how powerful, about presidents and, and powerful yes. people Event, yep. for for reasons that sometimes are not about like some That's particular right. thing and it, it's not because David Marinus was like soft on Clinton that no was hardly point. it was like no. it was like right the, the point, the, and this is why when I say it about Trump I, I think there's some insinuation when I say that Trump that for some people out there in the world that like Trump has a, a, a something in his head is different about you than it is about some other reporters people think that that like somehow means Trump likes Maggie because Maggie's soft on him, which is obviously ridiculous given the things you've reported about him. I say the same thing about Marinus. It wasn't like Clinton was obsessed with Marinus because he thought he was soft on him. He thought Marinus, having written first in his class, really got him on some level. Some part of Marinus and the way that Marinus acted and the way that he reported, even the dark stuff, even the negative stuff, it was like he like he couldn't get Mar- Even if he didn't want to be with Marinus, he wanted to be with Marinus. And I just feel like there's some element of that with Trump and you. I think so. I guess I would I would flip it around a little bit. I think that um, I actually think that there are some and I've talked about this before. There's some overlap between Bill Clinton and Donald Trump in this way. And I think that um, I always think about a story. I'll tell you my my version of the Marinus story. Um, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton have very recently moved to Chappaqua um, or actually, sorry, she had recently gotten elected. Uh, I forget why Bill Clinton had um, a New York one camera. Uh, which is the local television station in New York, which does uh, really, really, really good work. He had them up for some interview, and he starts giving a tour of the house. And it was on; it was like two hours. And and one of the people on it said, "I felt like I could have been like anyone." It was like the gardener, and he's just talking. And I do think that that is the case with Trump. It's just talking, and if you happen to walk in front of it. Uh, you know, you pick up on it. Um, I don't actually think that Trump has an appreciation for um, someone getting them the same way. And here's here's where I would say I disagree on yeah. on that because I think that I think Bill Clinton actually, and you tell me if you disagree with this. I think Bill Clinton um, likes being humanized the way that um, any politician I have ever met, you know, sort of uh, recognizes some value in that. Trump. Is it is repulsed <laughs> by the idea of 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 the kind of you know I've I've talked to a number of one a number of his aides about this over the years. Um, it it just falls in that bucket of, of weakness, which to be clear is never you know a goal of, of what we do. But right. there are things that certain politicians you know if they if they open up or they're reflective or whatever they think could you know reveal something in in coverage. That's not what Trump wants. So I mean I I just think it's I just think it's different. And with that, uh, we're going to end part one of this special two-part episode, the Haberman, Heilman, Hell on High Water. Maggie, uh, thank you for being with us and being part of uh, this this little wild experiment in podcasting that we call Hell on High Water. Uh, uh, in the experimental vein, we are going to uh, ask our listeners to take a 24-hour break. Feel free to walk around the grounds. Uh, you know, take a little uh, stroll, uh, you know, do some exercise if you wish, uh, uh, drink yourself into a stupor, uh, smoke a big, huge, fat bowl of indica and help that use that to help you get to sleep. Anything you, anything that will help you rest up for part two, because part two is a barn burner that's coming tomorrow. You'll hear about how Maggie came to believe that, uh, Trump could win the presidential election in 2016 about, uh, why Trump was able to survive, 
uh, the Access Hollywood tape about uh, the, the truth about his relationship with women and how to make sense of his very carefully worded responses around almost everything, but particularly to accusations regarding his misogyny. Uh, you know, the, we're going to talk about the, the meltdown, uh, which first reported in the book, uh, Confidence Man, Maggie's book, Trump had after George Stephanopoulos in 2016, asked Trump too many questions about his relationship with apparently someone who was a bit of a sore subject, Vladimir Putin. Uh, you know, the motivations behind Trump's authoritarian impulses, uh, all kinds of all kinds of stuff. We're going to talk about 2016, 2020, 2024, and beyond. You'll also get to hear in that context a never-before-released audio clip from one of Maggie's interviews for the book with Donald Trump where he talks about COVID and the implication of it's pretty clear that he knew a lot more about how bad the pandemic was uh, early on than his public statements uh, indicated. So um, all of that, we'll also talk about Herschel Walker, many things. It's going to be an incredible episode tomorrow, so really do come back tomorrow. Don't forget about it. It's going to be waiting for you when you wake up tomorrow morning, part two of this episode with Maggie Haberman of Helen High Water. And of course, while you're remembering important things, don't forget to pick up Maggie's book, Confidence Man, Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. <laughs>